Welcome to another episode of the Data Engineering Show. With us today, Stephen Moy. Uh, glad to have you with us, Stephen. Thank you so much for, for joining. Stephen is a software engineer at Yelp. Uh, I don't think Yelp needs any further introduction. Uh, I think we're all just super happy that now with vaccine spreading, we can all go back to using Yelp and being overly critical of restaurants and businesses and giving reviews and laughing about reviews that are funny and being excited about just seeing stuff and, and experiencing things in the world. But Stephen joined Yelp in uh, 2011. I think that's correct, right, Stephen? More or less? That's right. Uh, the first run. <laughs> throughout the years, uh, you've always been close to data-heavy projects, I think. Uh, you're an expert in query engines and performance. Uh, I urge you to check out what Stephen has been writing on LinkedIn on this subject. Very interesting stuff. I think we're all, as data enthusiasts, are a little bit envious of people like Stephen who work on cool and interesting data sets like the ones, like the data set Yelp has. And we'll talk about that. Uh, Steven, anything you want to add or I missed about yourself? No, uh, that's kind of a good background of me. So I've been um, pretty close to data. Um, at When I first joined Yelp, I was a web developer, mostly working in backend. So get to see the growth of our OLTP database in MySQL. And then quickly, like everyone else, you know, you want to get insights from your data. And if you're trying to do data analytics on MySQL, um, your database administrator will quickly find you and ask you kindly, you better not take down my database. And you need to find solutions. And at 2013, Yelp was already using MapReduce. Um, but it's not great because every time um, when someone wants to get an insight, they're like, hmm, how am I going to write a MapReduce job just to find this one thing? You know, you go through a lot of development cycles. And quickly, we land on a real data warehouse. In fact, we start on a cloud data warehouse at AWS. And that uh, started our journey on the OLAP space. So to get warmed up and understand sort of the, the Yelp environment in terms of data, how much data more or less does Yelp deal with? You know, we, like every company, you know, we have lots of different streams of data. Uh, for example, when you're using Yelp, you know, we want to make sure that we provide you the right recommendations, you know. So for that, we need to understand how our users are using our property. So we, like everyone else, we have an events uh, streaming model. So what happens is as you're using features on the site, we'll log events. You know, that will go through Kafka. And then from Kafka, we'll forward it to one um, multiple of our many data stores, depends on our use case scenario. Uh, one of them would be the data lake. You know, we it's an efficient way to store the data. Uh, not exactly as efficient in terms of when you want to use it and make it really fast. So we also stream the data into a traditional cloud data warehouse as well. Which cloud data warehouse are you guys running on? Um, you know, it's no secret. Uh, Yelp has been using Amazon Redshift for many years now. Um, they are a great partner with us. We have uh, given them a lot of feedback and they have moved their feature set a lot in the past few years as well. You talked about some of the history of your data stack and your pains in the, the MySQL days. How many years ago was it when Redshift was implemented and sort of what was the tipping point at the time that drove this? Yeah, actually, it's a very interesting story. So at Yelp, you know, we once also have our startup days and I joined a company in 2011. So the original, the very first 
the so-called data warehouse solution was in 2010. And what happened is, uh, of course, like uh, many successful web company, our OLTP space will have the, um, the leader database, and then we have replicas. And what we would do is we'll have an analytics-specific replica, and people will run their queries on it. And what happened is, quickly, as we brought more analysts on board, um, their queries would take too long to run. And this is a very funny story because what happened is as your analytic queries are running slowly on an OOTP, even replica, yes, it's not affecting your main database traffic. For example, you know, the website's still running. However, the replication will actually slow down. And our DBA team actually will get paged when application is too delayed. And you know, suddenly they're finding themselves being paged all the time. And of course, that's not really acceptable for organization to run our production fleet. So uh, our DBA gave a book to one of our new engineers to say, yeah, this is a book about building data warehouses. Please build us a data warehouse. <laughs> uh, that is how we first got our so-called data warehouse on, on, on a MySQL analytics-specific replica. Um, but very quickly, what people have find is like, you know, you can just not throw enough hardware. Like you, you keep scale uh, up. And actually at that point, Yelp still run on co-location. So we have to provision our own hardware. And you can imagine the arduous process to provision more beefier database hardware at that point. At that point, you know, there was a buzzword called uh, MapReduce uh, introduced by Google around 2008, 7, 2007, 2008. So we jumped onto the AWS EMR stack. So EMR is a elastic map reduce. So we will spin up those transient clusters. We'll do our data mining, running map reduce. We'll first export the uh, MySQL data into S3, and then we pull on Hadoop at it. Uh, it actually was pretty good because suddenly you have all the power, good compute capability because it's elastic, and to do all this insight. You know, it lasts us around 2013. And I actually have a great story to share because at that point, you know, no one's really talking about data warehouse because, you know, people were exchanging physical books back then. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, it's funny. It's like, you know, because it's such an expensive asset, right? Before the launch of Redshift, let's say if you want to do a data warehouse, you go to any of the big people, the Teradata of the dates, you know, you'll be like, yeah, sign me up. They'll be like, well, we'd love to. Did you bring your checkbook? Um, okay, how much is it? Initial implementation can easily cross a million dollars mark. And like any startup, we're like, whoa, like what? We, we don't get to use the product. We have to already pay a million dollars. Does it <laughs> include the track that gets the hardware? No. <laughs> I don't even know. Like, for example, even if we hand a check, how long would it take for that rack of hardware to show up? And now we have to go figure out how to plug it into our co-location space. <laughs> So at that point, um, you know, uh, Redshift launched around, I believe, like um, uh, 2011. I think that was when they started dating with the customers. And, you know, at that point, you know, we felt like we really wanted a high-performance data warehouse. And when we come across this product, it's like, oh, pay by usage. So you mean that we can just try it out? If it doesn't work, we can just walk away? Why are we not using it yet? So very quickly, actually, my team... Um, at that point, uh, was the first team that pilot uh, start ingesting our event stream data into Redshift, and we once we put up the data ingest into it, and we let our analysts to use it. They're like, "What did you do? 
Why is the curve that used to take hours to run just get run in like less than a minute? Like they're just blown away. They're like, this is great. This is done, right? Like we're going to use this for production, right? Now, of course, there's still, you know, it took us another nine months to productionize the, everything. But that's, you know, when Yelp got started with Amazon Redshift around 2013. In terms of headcount, without going into the specifics of the departments, how many people at Yelp deal with data initiatives? You know, that's always a very vague line. Because technically speaking, every team that needs to drive insight, they have their own share of data. In fact, is I would say, you know, both a data dialogue and also a silos because, you know, every team needs to build their uniqueness through their use of data. So, you know, everyone is involved, but we don't look at the same data. I think that is where the dilution comes in because oftentimes when, you know, everyone, you know, a team A versus team B got very excited about what the initiative they want to do, they will often bring in, you know, their charts and board. And then, you know, team B was sitting quietly, you know, they, you know, they would ask some questions, but then, you know, oftentimes after the big giant meeting, you know, they would you know, get together, have coffee. They're like, you know, that graph, we have questions because we got something very similar, but it actually, we thought it differently. And, you know, then suddenly everyone found us like, oh, you know, we were using the A prime copy of the production database. And then someone was like, oh, we're using a double A prime copy of the database. They're like, what? What? Like, how, 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 how did you get that copy in the first place? So um, that has been, you know, let me answer your question is, like, in terms of a team, you know, yes, we had a team that would power, for example, you know, the analyst. And that team is more, maybe five people. But for the engineer organization, I would say more than half the organization actually do need to derive insight from their data. But, you know, they don't talk about it because they just take it as a day-to-day activity. They wasn't even thinking about it as an initiative. So what kind of use cases do you do over the data? Share with us some of the leading use cases. Yeah, for example, um, you know, we're we're blessed. We are a crowdsourcing content, so it's user-generated content. And one of the things with the event of, um, you know, more powerful smartphone camera is we get lots of great photo contribution. In fact, uh, one of our VP of engineering is a big photo buff. You know, he will bring his DSLR and he will go snap photos like no tomorrow. And, you know, you know, and he will like, go, oh, yes, you know, I, I this month, like all my photos were like the top container of the most viewed photos. Uh, now, well, we get all these photos. Now what? Um, so one suggestion from one of the engineering team is like, hey, you know, you know, oftentimes when you're looking for a restaurant, you know, what's the favorite? Or you, you sit down with your friends, you know, you're like, what should we order? You know, and what, what the angle we have is we decide to use machine learning to um, find out what is the most popular dishes of a restaurant, both through the amount of photos people contributed and the reviews they have written to go figure out like how we service those great uh, dishes, popular dishes from the high quality photos that our users contribute to. So that's one example that is like very unique in our space. Amazing. And which teams were involved there? I mean, there's a data science team, I imagine, data engineering, software engineering. How does that kind of end-to-end project uh, Yeah. through? You know, often this project, you know, it takes some spark. You know, sometimes we would have the the uh, feature from the product managers, but I think this one particularly was from one of our hackathon project. So, like many other tech companies, we also have our hackathon at Yelp, and you know, someone suggested, you know, we should do something with our photos. 
So at a hackathon at Yale, uh, it used to be two days. It uh, happens about three times a year. Now, because of we're doing virtual hackathon, uh, it's lengthened. So we have three days. And uh, I remember when the feature was, you know, you know, put together during a hackathon, you know, you know, they, they put together a team. We got front-end team, back-end powers, and we got product managers onto the hackathon group. And they were trying to figure out, like, you know, how should we build this popular dishes? And I think, you know, the first, you know, what we do after a hackathon is we have, like, science fair uh, presentation. So people would put the table away. We were all still back together, you know, put this, you know, we'll put up all the tables on our social floor. You know, everyone have a little booth. You know, you know, they prop up their screen and they were pitching, yeah, look, you know, in San Francisco, what are some of the popular dishes of those very popular restaurants? And, you know, of course, you know, in two days, you know, you got to take a lot of shortcuts. Um, uh, but there was some very preliminary uh, ranking algorithms they've done. And, you know, of course, Jeremy walked by. They're like, wow, this is amazing. We got to ship this. And of course, then, you know, it's a much more, you know, a uh, flesh out process. You know, we, you know, we engage both our machine learning team. Uh, so in this case, the popular dishes uh, is actually uh, reside in our content, content understanding team. As you can imagine, yep, you know, our very unique specialty is sort of the user-generated content. So we have a content understanding team to put, you know, to bring semantics into, you know, the uh, both the review contribution and our photo contribution. And we have a lot of machine learning engineers in that team, but you know, uh, oftentimes, you know, we actually have a core machine learning team as well. So we'll, they will talk to them in terms of sort of what foundation facilities they can use. And they did also, you know, in order to first evaluate sort of their uh, ranker, you know, they also have engaged with um, data science. So in Yelp, data science is a pretty big org. And what happened is uh, we we trying to uh, match data scientists with the various groups at Yelp. So as an engineering group at Yelp, you will actually get matched to sort of your data scientists. You know, I think the ratio sometimes would be one data scientist to two teams. So, you know, they would say, yeah, this is sort of a preliminary, like very vanilla rank ranker. And, you know, the data science work with them to say, oh, okay, well, let's explore sort of like, you know, what are some of the existing model or would some of the past higher art that will work for them. And we, you know, of course, then the prototype, then what we do is we do very rigorous A-B experiment. In fact, we Yelp uh, itself has published a lot of um, methodology of how we do A-B experiments. And that's how we A-B tested, you know, oh, which, which ranker algorithm will get better traction in terms of the content that it picked. We talked about uh, Kafka and Redshift. Tell us a little bit more about your data stack. What other technologies yeah. are there? You know, Yelp's a pretty long company now. Uh, we accumulated our share of data storage technology. Let's see if I ramble off the list. Now, in the OLTP state, we got MySQL, uh, you know, very, you know, it was always this database that run our website and properties. Uh, you may not know, we actually have Postgres as well. Uh, I, I can't actually tell you what that Postgres database is for, but we have both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, um, you, know, you know, the audience may remember the big debate in 2010, um, web scale database, they have flown the, the, the wire. Um, we may have you know, dabbled our toes into MongoDB. Um, there is a couple MongoDBs you know, floating, but I would say they are not very close to running the website, but they are important to us. You know, Key Value Store, we actually also use DynamoDB. Um, as I, I think that will be one of our first managed database offerings we've used actually on Amazon. 
um, because of the ease of use. Um, you can imagine a, we actually have what we call the database reliability engineering team, uh, really focusing on the expert domain expertise on databases. Um, but through this long history of teams have trying out various technology, we have accumulated um, quite a bit of um, storage technologies. And, you know, DynamoDB was a, a unique situation where a team where they really need this very low latency key value store. And at the time, we do not have the domain expertise of something like Cassandra. Uh, we actually have moved a lot of our um, low latency key value usage to Cassandra. So we actually have a dedicated, um, in fact, uh, in our DRE uh, world, you know, we will have the DRE SQL team that really focus on the, the SQL side of things. And we have the DRE NoSQL that focus on, for example, Cassandra. Uh, so like those are some of the flavor of the technologies we have. So the OLTP space. Now on the OLAP space, you know, of course, we already mentioned Amazon Redshift. And in fact, in 2017, uh, when I, my second time to join Yelp, I took a two year break in between 2015 and 2017. So when I come back, you know, uh, we were using a lot of Redshift. And uh, I think that is, well, if Redshift works so well, that's the problem. Uh, at 2017, it actually has become a, a challenge for us. Uh, Redshift is so good and we were using it so much. You know, someone knock on our door and say, hi, um, the team that uses a lot of Redshift, can you help us to project you know, where the cost will go in the next few years? And we draw out our accelerator curve and you know, our finance counterpart asks us like, um, I think you want to innovate there because yeah. <laughs> that curve growth was, let's just say, not very expected for the our finance partner. Uh, so at that point, you know, the world also have pivot. Like we earlier mentioned Hadoop, right? I think around 2015, the Hadoop community have sort of, or many industry Hadoop companies have kind of saw this coming is they got to re-innovate uh, because... Um, Hadoop is not very sexy at this point because you got those um, cloud solution of data warehouses. And it turns out most people would want to interact with their data using SQL, not always bust out a MapReduce program. And, you know, they now have bring in this new, you know, I didn't know then, but at that point, this new phrase called a data lake. Let's, let's use our HDFS investment and make something out of it. So uh, you, you know, there are solutions like Impala is an open source project that was funded by Cloudera um, that really take the uh, people's existing Hadoop investment and then trying to put a SQL layer on top of the data, but not throwing the traditional map, map reduce. And they got a lot of uh, adoption there as well. And Yelp, actually, we never fully invested in the Hadoop ecosystem because for us, like we like the uh, serverless aspect of our analytics stack. You know, earlier I mentioned we were using EMR prior to Redshift, so our Hadoop cluster are all transient. So you, know, you boot it up, use the compute capability, and then you tear it down. So which means we actually already are storing a lot of our data on S3. Now, as you know, the audience know, S3 gives you 11 nines of availability uh, of um, uh, durability. You know, you don't really have to worry about that. You store something in S3, you may lost it. So a great place to store your data. And, you know, Yelp was already using S3 uh, in terms of storing our event streams or all of our logs. Um, but of course, like before 2017, most of our logs in, in GC, the JSON. 
And if you ever work with GCDB JSON, you know, first is you got to bring the data from the wire. Then you can, you know, as a stream, you can unzip them. Then you can process them. And, you know, what we were doing, because it's JSON, you know, even if you're looking for only some of the keys that really matter to your analytics, you still have to, you know, read the whole data streams, you know, to pick out the data. And in 2017, you know, uh, other pioneers like Twitter and Clouder, uh, Cloudera, they have kind of proposed this storage format called Parquet. Uh, Parquet is also an open source project. It's um, inspired by Google's Dremel project. And Dremel is the internal code name for Google BigQuery. And even at the time in 20, uh, 2011, when Google uh, was, you know, published some of the paper of the Dremel system, people were like very excited, especially uh, actually at that point at 2013, our VP of engineering is actually an ex-Googler. So, you know, you know, he will be reminiscent of, you know, if I have Dremel, all these things will be so much easier. <laughs> and, you know, some of the basis of the Dremel technology is, you know, they also store their data in a calmer fashion. They stuff it into the Google file storage systems. You know, nowadays they have a new iteration. Uh, but then all the compute facility, you're still writing SQL interacting with the systems, but, you know, all the compute facility is, you know, uh, transient. You don't have to think about servers. So at 2017, looking at our ever-growing Redshift field, we're like, oh, let's build this data lake thing because, you know, all these other companies are really pivoting in this field. Uh, in fact, yours truly get to lead a team of three people to build a data lake solution for Yelp in the next three years. So Yelp launched the outdate like around 2019 internally. And is we store all of our event stream data into Parquet, and then they will be stored on S3. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, you will still need a catalog. Uh, for us, we use the Amazon Glue ca- data catalog uh, because we don't actually have a Hive solution in-house. So we just use the data catalog. And that allows us to connect both to Amazon Redshift using Redshift Spectrum. And also at that point, there is a Amazon Athena product, which is uh, a variant of the open source Presto DB project. And of course, you know, like any ML organization, you kind of can't get away from Spark since Spark also have very good connectivity to S3 and with Perkey. Our data mining um, teams are also now using Spark to mine directly uh, from the data on, uh, on S3 via Perkey. So you've seen how... Essentially, all the technology stack we all know these days evolved over time. Little by little, took it on yourself, hands on. Awesome journey. Now, now we're going to do a kind of a blitz question round. So sure. short answers. I'm a little, just go with the flow. So sure. you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Commercial or open source? Depends. <laughs> <laughs> Batch or streaming? Streaming. Write your own SQL or use a drag and drop visualization tool? We do both. (laughs) Work from home or from the office? I like both. You have to be more uh, decisive. (laughs) (laughs) All Boolean answers, supposed to be Boolean answers. (laughs) No, actually, I'll tell you a joke regarding Boolean values. It turns out when you tell people there's a Boolean, true or false, it's technically try value because you forgot about null. 
Would Putting knives in a field is dangerous, you know? <laughs> it might slow I things think, down, but you can't think, avoid it. I think no itself can deserve a show. <laughs> We 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 can have we can add a corner like a, a joke a engineering joke corner in our podcast in addition to the blitz round corner. Um, okay, so AWS, GCP, or Azure? AWS. To DBT or not to DBT? We are actually deploying DBT in our uh, community right now. To Delta Lake or not to Delta Lake? Pass. <laughs> 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 okay, so that was it for the Blitzrun question. Tell me, Stephen, how about you share an awesome win with our listeners? Very, um, they can, it can't get better uh, uh, after the data lake story. Finding the <laughs> most amazing dishes after the photo. I think you always want to you work backward from your customer. This is something I learned from my days on Amazon. And one of the story is um, we were, as I mentioned earlier, we have our event stream data on data lake. And it actually, you know, one of the interesting thing is since we moved to uh, have a lot of our data on Data Lake, uh, we actually now have a lot of teams that will feel very comfortable just using Jupyter Notebook to explore data uh, on their notebook. And of course, it doesn't really have to do with Data Lake itself, but um, with Jupyter Notebook, with Transient Spark Cluster, it, it's now very natural for teams. They don't have to worry about, oh, I have to pre-provision resources. You know, they would just you know, spin up Transient Spark Cluster to analyze the data. And um, what happened is one of the team that is uh, building you know, unique features for our business owners is they want to be able to present um, you know, almost like a community. If you think about you have a CRM for the big enterprise, what about a CRM for the little guy, you know, the, the local business of the world, right? You know, so we want to be able to enable that capability for our local business. Now, what happened is, Yelp do have a lot of event stream data. You know, a day we typically easily accumulate four terabytes of compressed JSON data, you know. Um, GZIP, so it means a lot. Yeah, it, it's a lot. They are compressed really well, five eggs easily. And uh, what happened is um, they were able to build that product. And what they find out is they were starting to, um, you know, they want to be able to collect all the interaction that the users have with the local business for the individual business owner. And in order to, you know, build up all these, you know, features for the local business owner, they repeatedly run this data, you know, first, you know, you know, the typical curve will be, you know, we are looking for, you know, these types of interaction in this event log stream for some business ID such that they can record it such that later on our business owner, when they access the website in their business owner portal, you know, it will just bring some way away. And what was happening is um, once they, at first there was prototyping on Jupyter Notebook. They, when they productionize it, they, they, they need a more you know, uh, known availability. So they actually launched it, their um, features on AWS Athena. And you know, it's great. You know, Athena, as an as a ad hoc SQL um, query engine, allows you to run a large amount of data. And what happened was you know, the feature was fine. It was very successful uh, until... Again, our finance department knock on their door to say, hi, we noticed your Athena usage uh, through the roof. Uh, if for the audience that doesn't know, in Athena, the cost model is based on a terabyte scan. And um, 
I can't tell you the number. Let's just say uh, now they are suddenly, you know, very concerned because the feature is very popular. So they want to continue the features, but they were getting a lot of pressure in terms of how quickly they are spending money on AWS Athena. So they come to our team and say, hey, um, you build a data lake. Do you have any ideas? And I think this really speaks to uh, if you want efficiency, you've got to you know, work backward uh, and see sort of why you know, they were scanning so many terabytes to build their features. And it's very simple. You know, when we issue their query on Athena, we notice that, you know, it has certain predicates. You know, for example, when I say predicates, they have a word clause. The word clause will say, uh, looking at a particular event type and, uh, and, you know, for a particular business ID. Now, the power of indexing or power of soul map is that if your data is pseudo-sorted, your soul map will look very nice using your min and max statistics and it allows the current engine to skip a lot of data. And, you know, our team go ahead and started to uh, sort our data uh, on those predicates because we noticed that they are the biggest, you know, customer reading that data. And we sorted it based on the event types. And of course, we also big in the business ID. So they got very quick min max statistics to hone into what uh, uh, the data they need to look at. And it dropped at their cost to one hundredth of the original cost, and now they are a happy. You know, they deliver their awesome features to our local business owners, and we deliver values to them because now you know they can continue to use their curry because it's very magical, right? You you have the same SQL curry. You don't have to change any of their code, and just through the power of good data structure, good you know data organization. And they were able to keep their feature and everyone's happy. So there's a happy story ending there. I wonder when is the next time you will get approached to look into another huge initiative to reduce costs because queries are costing more than expected. But and, and when the next architecture leap will, will allow to, to solve that. I, I think, you know, everyone has been getting somewhat addicted with elastic compute. And that usually comes, you know, because it's very magical, right? You know, as a small team, you can tackle you know, the hardest problem in this world. Uh, only then, you know, like the Amazon of the world is not going to stop your, um, you racking up the bill because, you know, they are a compute utility company. Uh, it's only then, you know, your finance side as they are paying the bills with their credit card, they're like, yeah, we need to have a chat. Yeah. And I think that is where the, the push and pull comes in to say, hey, you need to innovate. Like, yes, you can deliver great features, but you also need to be able to do it on a, you know, a tractable way in terms of, you know, our cost basis. And, you know, that would drive some uh, innovation, you know, across the use. Now it's time for you to stop showing off those amazing things and tell us about an epic failure. Yeah, um, you know, I'll be very honest with you. Uh, in 2017, you know, when I rejoined Yelp and get to take on this daily project, I don't know anything about database. It was more the, yes, you know, I used to work at Yelp in the 2013 to 2015 span, and I happened to be, you know, the team that brought up Redshift and also Elasticsearch. And, you know, yes, I know a little bit of data, but, you know, I'm not really a database enthusiast. And what happened is, you know, the, the buzzword data lake was really buzzy. You know, everyone is doing it. You know, there are some really big, you know, titans in, in industry. For example, Netflix, you know, you can see all the tech talks from Netflix, you know, talking about how they have built a cloud-native data warehouse completely on an S3. 
So we build it daily. At this point, I actually don't even know who Michael Stonebreaker is. Now, for the audience, Michael Stonebreaker just happened to be one of the three ever tooling award winner in the data uh, database space. And you know, if you dig into so there's a uh, if we can put on the show note, there is a wonderful open source resource that they've written. It's called Redbook.io. It is the um, a collections of articles and also uh, primary sources where they talk about how people put database together and what they see in the industry. Uh, in 2010, um, David Dewitt uh, and uh, my, uh, Michael Stonebreaker's friend and colleague uh, in another university, you know, Dewitt and Stonebreaker wrote an article about how dumb Hadoop is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the completely wrong way because, you know, they spent 30 years to figure out how to build database, really fast database for people to use. And people that are doing MapReduce basically throw all the other windows and say, nah, we don't, no, 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 that's just useful. And you know, they got really ridiculed in the Hadoop community. The Hadoop community said, no, nah, you pass your time, you know, professors, mm-hmm. you don't know what you're doing. Um, guess what? Um, Google actually, I won't say they abandoned MapReduce. Let's just say uh, even within Google today, uh, they will jump to BigQuery first. They will not use MapReduce to write their first job. At that point, I think, you know, Michael Stonebreaker already have pointed out, but I don't know about Stonebreaker at this point in 2017. And Stonebreaker said, like, you know, we don't really know about this data lake space. It's maybe it's useful. But certainly the encoding, columnar storage is a, a leap in terms of uh, having data sitting at rest. But whether that is the way to organize your data, like, it is very doubtful. Because think about it. You have a data lake. What do you have? Essentially, you have a pseudo file system. Actually, you have a worse than file system. You do get the um, you know durability and the availability of a massively scale out system of a uh, blob store. But you know now, um, what happened when you want to do some of those? Uh, uh, let's let me bring you an example. A very simple API in POSIX file system, MV move, is atomic. In fact, the atomic attribute of move is kind of, it's the linchpin of many algorithms. An atomic rename certain uh, oftentimes is how you atomically do a swap and also commit uh, some of the data to expose it to the current engine. You can do a move in uh, S3. Like, that API is not available. So how a lot of the times people pretend there's a move is a copy plus a delete. So you have your data organized in a data lake. You still suddenly have to go organize your data very manually. So instead of having you know, your typical outer table or um, you know, a lot of the show create table, now you have a litany of objects you know, lying on your S3. Think about it. Uh, I think last time when I go look at how many objects is in one of, our, one of the S3 buckets, is already at the four billion objects mark. Um, <laughs> how, how, how are you supposed to organize it? If someone say, Stephen, I, I I used to have this data, but I don't know where it is anymore. Can you help me? It is a very daunting thing to go find this object in your S3 bucket. So I mean, and that is why you know people have used database for a long times because um, there are lots of um, you know heart and sweat in terms of maintaining a catalog, a native catalog in the database and allowing you to use the table abstraction to perform a lot of the operations. Now, why I give you all this story? 2017, I was basically asked to build a data lake and I went ahead and built it. And what happened is as I, you know, you work with a customer, helping them on board, what I see is 
uh, I'll give you an example that a lot of people tell me they are like you know very impressed. You know now you have this infinitely scalable storage and you can query anything and everything is burstable. You know they they ask me one thing because whenever I onboard a new customer, there's one thing I taught them and I I make sure that I I, I reminded them. Hi, so um, in this ecosystem, we really want to ask you that whenever you write a query, please, please, please make sure your predicate uses the partition key. <laughs> so they, they stare at me, they're like, Stephen, what is a partition key? <laughs> I was like, that's a great question. So a partition key for a data lake oftentimes is for data that, you know, in order for the current engine to prune a lot of data out, they use... Uh, perhaps a prefix uh, for us, we actually, most of our data is uh, time series data. So we use a partition key called DT. Um, they are just date, you know, 2020, you know, 0201 for February 1st, 2020. Um, you know, that's naive, um, but it's actually very counterintuitive. Now, for example, you know, why is it counterintuitive? In a traditional data warehouse, you may have a sort key. Uh, and of course, naturally, your event time is your sort key. So, you know, many people that are using data warehouse solution are already custom to, yeah, of course, I should write my query that uses the event time. Why isn't event time a partition key? Your cardinality is too high. Like you can't, your event time is typically millisecond or even worse is second. The cardinality is too high. Well, why do, what do you mean by cardinality too high? Imagine, so the so-called catalog is actually also powered by a relational database. And imagine your index that has billions of entries. You know, it's still actually uh, not, not only that you go first find, seek to where the range you care about. Um, because a data catalog like um, in Glue or the traditional Hive data catalog, you still have to go scan the prefix to find out what objects you need to work on. And that could take a long time. The now, index scan takes most of the queries time. And because you let the kind of the as you said, the, the Postgres or the operational database that drives the metadata actually do the index scan. So that is kind of, uh, can be very painful. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, for the users, speaking back to the partition key, for them too, it's, it's a very laborious concept because they say, so my, all my original queries are using event time. So, of course, I'm going to start there. And now you're going to tell me to go at this partition key predicate. Fine, they would do it. You know, for a simple query, that seemed very reasonable. The curves that I typically come across with my customers are easily three, four hundred lines. You no know, predicates are basically many, many, many predicates. Fifty and predicates, easily, right? Yeah. And now you're telling them, please, for let's say you know it's easily a ten table joints. You tell them, oh, for each of the table joint, can you make sure you add a uh, the corresponding predicate for those ten tables? Like they, they, you can see the eyes start, you know, the pupil <laughs> growing bigger. And you know, I know I have a problem because. It is literally hurting their mind. Like, yes, is, can it be done? Of course it can be done. Like, they are a capable analyst. But it's wasted work. <laughs> you are making them to change how they think about approaching a space that they're very familiar with. And suddenly, you're, you're jamming this foreign concept. And the worst thing is, your partition key is only efficient based on your query pattern. That means that sometimes, as a, the administrator of this daily, I need to go change the partition key because how people use this, the table changes. And now what? Like, because I have exposed this concept of a physical partition key, 
every time I change them, you know, I I, I send some nice Slack messages like, hi, I know you have this query that you haven't touched. No, they will run. Can you please re, re, uh, rewrite them to use this new partition key we're going to introduce? You know, I, I can literally virtually witness like the, the virtual pitchfork that they want to stick onto my my, my Some my people beer. definitely hated you back then. Uh, you can say yes. <laughs> and I would say, you know, despite we built a successful project in the beginning and gained a lot of adoption, I actually think of this as one of my greatest failures because, uh, yes, we built a scalable system, but we literally have forgot the usability mm-hmm. of our customers. And I would say everyone now is busy trying to take ourselves out of that hole. <laughs> what, uh, what's the top uh, challenge for? Yelp data initiatives these days? You know, it's not a, my idea, but I think from ThoughtWorks a couple of years ago, there is this idea of a data mesh. And, it, and I'll kind of briefly touch on what a data mesh is. Um, the author of the paper, I think, is from ThoughtWorks. And what their observation is in the enterprise with many people that use the systems, uh, you know, typically the classic way is you will have a team that is your, your emissary. You know, they know how to deal with the, the physicalness of how to organize the data. And they also understand the customers that are just using SQL to access the data. And because people are accumulating new types of data so quickly, your bottleneck is really on the centralized team. And I would say it is actually very difficult for a centralized team to have all the understanding of the domain-specific data. Um, they don't really know, like, oh, yeah, this table is full of sparse floats. Why is this sp- full of sparse floats? Well, machine learning people really like sparse floats. That's all they like about it. Find the engineer who put in the, the array inside the yeah. JSON, inside the variant field. Right. And there are the types of data that are very dense. In fact, there are a lot of trickery you can do when they are very dense uh, array uh, columns and arrays. And you know, because they don't really know the domain, they are really just trying to make sure everything is sane in the ecosystem. They they often got outrun by the both the producers and the consumers. So the author of the paper data mesh, you know, they propose is, hey, you know, we feel like the technology of data warehousing, data lake, or engines, they are ubiquitous enough that why don't we let the domain data producers to organize them themselves? And using this vague, you know, you know, very loose interface in terms of, yeah, tables that a, a team-specific team want to publish it to let the organization to use it. So they call it the data mesh. So it's like almost do- all, all, every specific domain, they have their little um, data ecosystem and you make sure that it's a mesh because that you can actually curry all of them together. Um, that's a, a lofty goal. Like I, you can see the concept, there are a lot of uh, valid points, but we, when we're trying to flow this idea, uh, it's actually the, the most difficult part. Uh, I would say a lot of organizations, because they are running so fast, in terms of how they want to approach, like you know, maintain their data, how to track what is being used and also how are people using it, um, it's a secondary thought because, of course, a lot of the time when they spend, they want to think of the next great algorithm to make the next greatest recommendation. They're thinking how to make the website fast. The organization of data is a, yes, they have to do it, but it's very secondary. And how do you create a enough tooling to really deploy data mesh in a enterprises like Yelp is still a very challenging thought. And, but we definitely have seen running into sort of the 
you know, the bottleneck of only have one centralized team to, you know, handle all these data ecosystems. That seems like a heck of a challenge. I think that once people realize that a table is, as you said, it's just an abstraction on a bucket and that a database is just a logical record in a meta store and then meshing up stuff kind of becomes more approachable. And, and, and you've mentioned before predicates, you've mentioned some terms. So yes, there's always a gap of kind of how do I simplify the internals? How do I evolve technology? How do I evolve the way data gets crunched without breaking the simplicity that people got used to? And as, as you try to join stuff and add data sources together, I think, I think uh, uh, Yelp is, is just an amazing uh, kind of evolution on, 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 on how, how to build that. And, and the fact that your customers drive your, your, you know, how you deploy data is also unique. Uh, and, and, and it's really amazing to see that. Where, and you remember, once upon a time, data was this sidekick where you used to f- look for insight. Yes. Now, nobody looks for insight. Now, this is your business. Amazing. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. Steven, we're about to wrap up. Maybe uh, before we wrap up, any sort of uh, company leader in data, something you uh, that inspires you that you think our listeners should follow? Well, that's a it's a, a a trap question. No, now your audience should know, like you know the. The, the sponsor of this podcast is Firebolt. And, you know, I've actually have, I first got introduced to Firebolt in 2020. And it's certainly a, a differentiation product. So I'll kind of give your listener in terms of, you know, my kind of uh, passion in, in the analytics market is um, how to think about, you know, the various engine and what are all the techniques behind those engine. And I kind of give you, your audience, a flavor, right? You know, Amazon Redshift being, one of the first to market in terms of cloud data warehouse. You know, they really pioneered that. Like, yeah, you just you should only charge per use. Like, there's nothing else. You shouldn't pay more when you're not using it. Um, they really kickstarted the okay, we can actually have a data warehouse in the cloud, right? Now, of course, your audience may have noticed. You know, 2020 there's a blip in the stock market called Snowflake that's worth 85 billion dollars like within five years, and because they demonstrated that, like, wow, if you can make this data warehouse thing completely limitless, not thinking about storage, not thinking about even what cloud you deployed it in. Um, there's a lot of value in that. So basically, Frank Sluthman is your hero. Well, I would say, you know, you know, I certainly, you know, not at a Yelp capacity. I follow, you know, um, many of these organizations have published their paper to, you know, VLDB or Sigmod. And that's how I learn about their systems. I think what Snowflake has really solved is if you have S3 as a substrate, how would you imagine your, you know, how to build a database? Remember, like Redshift is an evolution of an MPP system that runs on, you know, virtualized hardware on the cloud. But they did not, you know, build this solution from the ground up to say, what happened if you just have an object store? What to do next? And they certainly have demonstrated that, um, you know, if you have an object store, you actually don't have to worry about losing data. Now you should make sure that you can actually uh, run curves on the data in a very, you know, fast manner. And what they've done, and I think they, they use this, you know, they, they have this insight, right? It's like, wow, because it's the cloud, you have limitless elasticity in terms of compute. Let's just use compute to go through the data. 
And it's a very powerful concept because like, now you are no longer bounded by how many hardware you can stick onto your rack. And you know, they are one of the great users of EC2 in the cloud. Uh, but I think you know, those classic things we've learned in our database courses didn't disappear, right? So you have a disaggregation. Yes, they, Snowflake, this, Snowflake pioneered the disaggregation of data and compute. And technically, Bicker has done it for a lot while. They just haven't quite figured out how to market BigQuery to the other customers. And what happened is, in joining this disaggregation, um, your data are really far now. So meaning that if you really want to get your data really fast, you have to go figure out how to get the data from S3 to the box at the end. That's still a box. And then you know, suck into the CPU and then analyze the data in your CPU. Um, your latency is a lot farther now. So you need to innovate to figure out like now that your data path is so far away from the CPU, what can you innovate to make it work? And now, what's interesting, right? When Firebolt, you know, you know, uh, talked to me initially to kind of present when they still stealth about the solution, is like they're saying that is, well, you know, last, you know, the last decade, actually, the database community has still moved forward a lot of ideas on data organizations, you know, and how you um, do your data structure in a many course environment to be efficient. And, you know, those haven't really been exploited by solutions by Snowflake. So when I see kind of Fireball in terms of how they really, hey, you know, the tricks here is be efficient about where you store the data and how little data you can access. Um, you know, to me, that really show me is sort of a next iteration of where the next cycle of innovation will happen. And, you know, certainly the, you know, people are not sitting still, right? You know, I see Amazon Redshift has matches lots of uh, capabilities of Snowflake. And as Fireball really show off, you know, the unique efficiency, you know, to the world, you also have target pinged on your back. People know like, oh, wow, you know, when customer notice, the other person is more efficient and they notice because their bill is a lot lower. Wow, that's the next fight. <laughs> and they will jump right into it. It's never boring in the data space. Exactly. Steven, this has been super, super fun and interesting. Thank you so much. And this is it. Uh, listeners, please subscribe. Click below, above, to the right, to the left, all these buttons of subscribe and follow. Click them so you can listen in to more interesting conversations. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Bye.